Dear Quest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Quest Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. For this episode, I'm joined by Anne Shields, who is an ESG and sustainability expert. Anne joined me on the podcast about two years ago, and I was keen to catch up with her to chat about some of the developments that have been happening in this area in the two years since we spoke last. So we had tons of ground to cover, as you can imagine. We talked about the outflows that we've seen from ESG funds over the fourth quarter of 2023, and whether that was a sign that maybe some of the steam had gone out of the ESG brand. We also talked about the regulatory changes. So we've got SFDR 1.5, SFDR 2.0, and then we've got regulations around corporate uh, disclosures and also the rating agencies who issue ESG ratings. They're on the way into the regulatory sphere as well. So tons to talk about on the regulatory side. And we wrap up by chatting about the current Common Supervisory Action, or CSA, which has been undertaken by ESMA and the Central Bank, where they're going out trying to find out what firms are doing currently when it comes to complying with rules around disclosures and implementation of SFDR. So as I said, tons of ground to cover. And it turns out that lots has been happening in this space in the two years since we spoke last. So sit back and enjoy this episode, all dedicated to ESG, and my chat with Anne Shields. The Equest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hi, Anne. It's great to have you back on the show. Hi, Danny. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's been almost two years since we we had you as a guest on the Equest podcast, and a lot has happened in that time in terms of the ESG world and the development of the regulations and, I guess, how used to it people are getting. But I just wondered, what's your sense of it over the last little while, over the two years since uh, since we spoke last? Is it as active when you're immersed in it as it seems to be when you're kind of stood on the sidelines? I think it is. I mean, I can't believe, I can't believe it's been two years. A lot has happened. Really, a lot has happened. I, I think if I listened back to the podcast two years ago, I, I, I probably would have different views on things now. And a lot of that is down to the fact that, you know, now we see the market practice evolving around things like implementing SFTR, what your disclosures look like, what your periodic reporting looks like, and how you're operationalizing that within your fund management company, within your fund. And so that's SFTR alone. But then the, the pace, I think, of regulatory change and development has not slowed down at all. If anything, it's picked up because it, it's kind of finalizing a lot of proposals that came out. Um, and I think if I had to pick one topic that's really under the spotlight at the moment and is a bit of a game changer is, is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD. Now that doesn't, funds aren't, uses and apes aren't in directly in scope of that themselves, but it does have knock-on effects and just generally for the world of corporate sustainability and financial services, that one's a bit of a game changer. Yeah, it does sound like it. We, we will chat about it in a little bit more detail. And I guess there's nothing that gladdens the heart of uh, financial services businesses more than hearing about not just regulatory change, but more regulatory change and more detail and more expectations being loaded on them. Yeah. Um, I wondered, though, I just read a report from Morningstar about, uh, in early February. It talked about outflows from ESG funds, and it said that, that Q4 23 was the first time that there'd been a period of outflows from ESG funds globally, albeit that in Europe they were those slight inflows, but, but at uh, historically low levels. And I just wondered... 
from your perspective, what's your sense with the ESG world and the ESG fund world? Has some of the steam gone out of it that we're seeing outflows or are managers and investors still as interested as they were maybe when we chatted two years ago? Yeah, so and that that's you know, that morning star reports are always, I think, really on the money in, in terms of, of what's going on in the market. I, I think people are getting more ESG isn't it isn't brand new anymore. I think on the understanding of what ESG means, there's still divergence in what people understand it to be. I think that's inevitable because it covers such a broad range of issues. You know, you've got environmental, social and governance, and there's so many issues in between all of that. So I think there's a bit of of sort of settling in the market. I don't know whether in that report they made any comments about the fund outflows being, you know, being comparable across the market. So in other words, ESG funds, it wasn't any different for any other kind of funds. Well, in fairness, and I should say uh, for context, the the outflows from ESG funds were less than the outflows from, from, you know, active uh, funds or from ETFs and passive funds. So it's not that uh, ESG funds were alone in it by any way. But I guess it just... Because we haven't really seen any kinds of outflows or negative outflows overall that it's stood Whether That's a, a kind of a trend. Look, mm. I, I, I'm i not sure. I, I think what people are getting to is sort of normal commercial rules apply in terms of raising capital and where you're going to put your money. I think ESG is a really is a, is an important factor and will continue to be important for the people that want it to be important. And I think the differentiation is maybe investors want to see it being done well they're getting more sophisticated maybe about you know understanding it being done well we've more disclosures out there because of SFDR so people can can compare and contrast which is what the regulation was designed to do but I think when you look at it globally so Europe obviously really really strong and SFDR is mandatory and you know kind of in my view it's probably the best best chance we have of directing capital flows in, in the funds market anyway to a more sustainable sustainable economy and sustainable economic activities kind of globally obviously it looks different in different regions so if you, if you look at the at the US for example ESG definitely politicized definitely you know in the culture wars and you have the likes of of BlackRock so we got very used to Larry Fink coming out with his annual letter you know his dear CEO letter really ESG front front and center almost taking a step back going I don't know if we're going to use the term ESG anymore because people have just latched onto it and it's become really politicized. I don't think that means ESG is going away. I just think it needs to be reframed in people's minds and consumers and investors' minds. And there's this talk of, of a concept of thinking more about rational sustainability. So around sustainability and investing sustainably being around creating long-term value. And I think that's the way to go because that's very hard to argue with. You know, no one can really have an issue with creating long-term value, uh, if you look at it that way. I think different regions are different, but I do think the kind of the US view on ESG probably has influenced the market and, and how you hear ESG and ESG funds popping up and, and, and being talked about. So, so notwithstanding some outflows, I guess the message is that ESG funds are, are not going anywhere. They're they're starting, well, starting to mature is probably overstating it. They're, um, they're certainly settling in and becoming part of the, the suite of products available to investors. I think that's right. And, you know, if you kind of talk about it from a purist point of view, sort of a purist sustainable finance point of view, you know, you're not going to have ESG and non-ESG funds anymore. Everything should just be investing for long-term value and investing sustainability sustainably. So I think, you know, that's kind of the, the purest view on it. But look, you'll always get, you know, you will always get a range of products out there in the market that will cover everything that is available to invest in. So including the not so sustainable things, but but that's 
that's that's life and that's the economy that we we live in yeah and i guess one of the interesting things from the morning star report with the outflows one of the issues that they picked up on in terms of europe was that perhaps some of the the outflows were due to investors being a little bit confused about the product range or about the regulatory regime and i and on the back of that then of course you have the commission launching a review into sfdr so you could understand why investors might be confused if a regime that's only about two years old is already up for review. I wonder if the commission shoot themselves in the foot a little bit by launching SFGR so quickly, relatively speaking, without really having all of the, the detail of it bedded down? Has it actually done them a bit of harm? I mean, hard, hard to say. I mean, you're preaching, talking to the converted here, you know, I I think SFDR, as I've said, is, is the best chance that we have of directing capital towards more environmentally friendly, socially friendly economic activities. And the fact that it's mandatory in Europe, I, I, I do think it's the best chance that we have. So I'd really, really like to see it work. I think it's inevitable that there needed to be some changes as it worked through being implemented by the market, in large part, I think, because it's one regulation covering so many different types of financial market participants and so many different types of financial products. So everything is in there across the financial sector spectrum from, you know, from asset management to insurance to to manage accounts and pensions, you know, so everything is covered and it's, it is hard to come up with a one size fits all for that, notwithstanding the fact that you're talking about such a scale of of E issues, of S issues and G issues underlying it all. So so perhaps, I mean, I'm not sure it was designed to kind of go, right, we'll just get this out there and see how it goes. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I don't know if that's, that was the approach, but I think some refinement is, is inevitable. I, I think the very strong reaction that has come out from the market is that both on, on the buy side and the sell side, people are looking for certainty and credibility. And that raises the specter of should this have been a labeling type regime? Mm. And, you know, that is obviously one of the questions in the European Commission consultation on SFDR. So you mentioned, you know, it's under scrutiny and it's under consultation. So there's actually three consultations out there at the moment. You have one on the level two SFDR technical standards. That's that was an ESMA consultation. We got a final report out on that on the 4th of December last year. So I think everyone's kind of calling that SFDR 1.5. So changes to, to the level two disclosures and, and some more certainty around things like principal adverse indicators, which is good. And then we have kind of SFDR 2.0, which is the European Commission consultation. So that kind of there's two consultations embedded in that. So that's why I say there's three, but but one was kind of more consumer focused and, and one more targeted to um, stakeholders in the, in the financial market. But broadly speaking, one is just a longer version of the other, actually. So that one is, you know, the interesting things in both of them. So I do agree with the, what you're saying. People are getting a bit confused, a bit, a bit kind of, I mean, not fed up, but thinking, right, hang on a second, I've gone and done these disclosures now and they're changing already. You know, yeah. is, it, is it worth it? <laughs> that, that you know, that is a headache. Definitely, yeah. if, if you put in time and resources to making these disclosures and they're changing again, you know, I can see why, why that is off-putting. Uh, But hopefully we will end up, I think, once we're through it all with something that is that gives the credibility that that the market is looking for, particularly around products. I mean, do we end up with labels? Maybe. I mean, if we do, you know, I think I think you need more than two. You know, our our Article 8 and 9 love Article 8, you know, is really broad, uh, as we know. So so is there something like more than two labels? And then obviously with the UK SDR coming out, the FCA came out with their final report on that with their four label categories 
even though they're voluntary, not mandatory like SFDR, you know, obviously it's it's hard to not to pay attention to, to that as well. Yeah, it's sensible to do that. And I think in terms of rushing, well, rushing the, the regime out, maybe it was the right thing to do in terms of, it's a bit of a pain when you're trying to implement it, but maybe it was right to just get something out there and, and, and see how it goes. Because if you were to wait till you've settled every piece of detail, you might, you'd run the risk of never getting anything out. And given the climate emergency, that this is part of a fix, hopefully. Yeah, yeah m- maybe time was at the essence and they just had to do it. But having said that, I think <laughs> as we get to SFDR 2.0, I think it, it this one does need to be pretty close to the mark because after that, you do run the risk of just turning people off and turning yeah. investors off. Yeah, um, I, I think so this that's one needs fair. To be right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of timing then, so obviously SFDR was March 21. The that consultation, so the 2.0 consultation was uh, September 23. So again, like really two and a half years for a major rewrite isn't great, but it is what it is. And that closed in December. So I guess yeah. over the course of 24, we should see where the commission's thinking is at. And that consultation was quite broad. Like, I mean, they, they did throw out a lot of things like getting rid of eight or nine designations and stuff like that. So it'd be interesting yeah. to see what they start to settle on. Yeah, and I th- I think the important thing to remember as well is so that that consultation is on the level one legislation, so SFDR itself, and it is a much longer process to change level one legislation than it is to change level two legislation. Um, so in reality, when all that's the dust settles on the consultation and and you get a picture of okay where we're going on this, then you need to enter into the legislative process. So in reality. When are you going to see a change to SFTR level one? You know, are we talking 2028? Are we talking to, you know, 2029? Mm. So I guess in, in the kind of short to medium term, SFTR, what we have now amended by SFTR 1.5 is what we have to work with. And as if that wasn't enough, Anne, there, there's plenty of other regulatory initiatives and change on the way that also affect this sector, albeit not necessarily SFDR. So uh, you mentioned at the start the Corporate Sustainability Disclosure Regulation, CSDR. Chat a little bit about that and the detail of that and uh, what it's going to mean for the financial service industry or for the funds industry, albeit they're not directly in scope. Yeah, so Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, as I said, that is consuming an awful lot of time in the sustainability world at the, mo- world at the moment in Europe, but, but more globally as well. Um, and really, so what is that? It is a regime where European companies, now it does have third country reach as well, we won't get into that, really have to report on how their organisations consider environmental issues, social issues and governance issues um, from a double materiality perspective, right? And you hear an awful lot of talk about double materiality. And what does that mean? It means requiring companies to disclose information on significant sustainability matters from a financial perspective, an impact perspective or both. So that's really the game changer piece around CSRD. The other game-changing piece is once this information is reported and it needs to be included in their in their management reports, limited assurance will be required on it. Okay. So that is making people really sit up and pay attention to their processes around this. Mm. Um, so corporates having to to produce all this information and, and it's kind of a, a scaled effect. So big, big, big entities already reporting under the non-financial reporting directive um, will be reporting next year covering this financial year. And then, you know, it, over the next couple of years, it, it'll affect 
not those massive organizations, there's a trickle down effect. So it really will, everybody really needs to pay attention to this to see, am I in scope? Am I not really um, at the start? It doesn't apply to use it's an AFES. Okay, there's an exemption in there for that. So funds don't need to report. But what I think it does mean, so for those use it's an AFES that are investing in these companies that do report under CSRD, the idea is that there should be an awful lot more readily available information around sustainability issues. So for the investment process and flowing through to what you're disclosing under SFDR or how you're calculating your principal adverse impact indicators, for example. So I guess if we were five years down the tracks, looking back when CSCR and SFDR has evolved, this issue about investor confusion ought to be hopefully a little bit resolved in that companies are disclosing more and better quality and more accurately around sustainability and then investment funds in making their decisions are able to make better decisions because they have better information and then investors can understand what it is the funds are doing and and trust that issues like greenwashing and and what have you uh, are being well managed. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the idea. Absolutely. That's the idea. Um, it, I mean, it's not perfect. You know, as I said, if you're investing all in, in all US equities, you know, they're 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 not necessarily in scope of CSRD, what you do there or, pri- you know, listed, certainly large listed corporates. Hmm. I think that's that's going to work for um, there, there will be gaps. But, you know, it does affect, you know, if you're in, if you're in the value chain of, of a listed corporate, they're going to be asking you questions around these issues as well so they can report accurately so it's kind of the it's getting the big list of guys to nudge nudge everyone to be able to 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 look at this information so that they can report it yeah and i guess there's an element here of market discipline playing a playing a role so that if investors with large amounts of cash to invest ask or demand of companies that they're making these kinds of disclosures then it's going to push those companies into this even if the regulations haven't haven't done that exactly exactly yeah yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing in, in the Irish funds industry, or European funds industry, to just to think about with CSRD is if you're a large manco, listed or not, you, you know, probably worth a look to see, right, am I in scope of this or how how might it influence me? So if, if the fund vehicles themselves aren't in scope, it doesn't necessarily mean that that the, the larger mancos may not need to pay attention to it from a scope perspective. And as if that wasn't enough, Anne, in terms of regulatory change, we also have rating agencies for ESG ratings starting to come into scope as well or at least they're in the they're in the uh, headlights for uh, regulation yeah exactly so i guess just taking a step back when we say ESG rating agencies where where does that fit into into the picture again it's it's probably a service that has been developed to support financial market participants number one in, in making investment decisions making their their sustainable investment decisions so helping them get the information about the underlying companies so they can build their sustainable investment policy and um, engagement policies etc so to be able to do the portfolio management side of things the other type of service that they provide is to is to provide information that ultimately really flows through to SFDR disclosures so both really valuable services for financial market participants and, and fund participants and these ESG rating agencies I mean there's t- there's tons of them out there in the markers both European based and outside European based and they've been under the spotlight from regulators for quite a while now uh, because I guess the 
there isn't harmonization across how one ESG rating agency might score a particular corporate compared to how another one might do it. So there was there was some an interesting research done into kind of comparing the correlation between how one ESG rating agency might score a particular corporate versus another rating agency. And for you have things like credit ratings the big market players and that would correlate their ratings would correlate to about 0.9 ESG rating agencies the highest kind of correlation was 0.6 or something like that so a real divergence again no surprise there because you're dealing with E issues S issues and G issues one rating agency might weight E more highly for a particular underlying corporate and another one might rate S really highly for a particular underlying corporate so you get divergences and and you hear about certain large corporates, global corporates being dropped out of, you know, the S&P, ESG, you know, they might have, their rating yeah. might have, have got gone lower because maybe they were putting more of a focus on their G issues rather than their E issues. Okay. So, so, so no comparison, no comparability really. And, and as we know, European regulators are really, really keen on transparency, comparability and harmonization where they can be under the market. So that's kind of the, the purpose behind looking at ESG ratings. So, really strengthening reliability and comparability of ESG ratings. That's kind of the, by the providers, that's the aim. So right. under the new rules that are proposed, rate ESG rating providers would need to be authorised and supervised by ESMA. Um, so they're not currently, uh, and they need to comply with transparency requirements and particularly with regard to their methodologies and sources of information. Okay, so what was once, what is now currently a closed, a closed book will need to be more open in terms of what rating agencies are doing. Yeah, and we should say, like, post-financial crisis, one of the many changes was to bring credit rating agencies within the regulatory sphere, and they're, uh, as you said, they're registered and, and supervised by ESMA. And so I'm, I'm guessing that what will happen here will be an extension of that, given that ESMA already knows how to, uh, you know, authorise and yeah. supervise credit rating agencies that will now extend it to ESG rating agencies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that 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 would that would be sensible. So this this is really topical at the moment because I think there on uh, just on the fifth of, of February, provisional political agreement between the European Council and the European Parliament was reached. So so there's there's kind of excitement about this at the at the, at the time of recording at the time we're recording right now, Danny, around this uh, regulation. But that's not the end of the story. It still needs to be approved by the Council and the European Parliament before going through formal adoption, right? That's that legislative process that we talked about. But uh, once it's looking good in terms of support for the proposals. So I think this will be a real thing. And what will that mean then for funds and the people who use these rating agencies? They're going to have a lot more transparency about how these agencies are calculating the, the scores that you get, the composite scores that you get for ESG. I think there's probably, they're introducing the possibility as well of providing separate E and S and G ratings, which I personally think is is quite, is the way to go. I think that's a clear approach. But if, if they're providing a single rating, they need to show what the weighting is between the E, the S and the G factors. So that that's going to be information that currently isn't out there in the public domain anyway. I mean, mm. who's, you know, a fund client of an ESG rating provider may be able to ask and get that information anyway, but but it, that that is all going to be transparent now. Sounds like more activity and, and work for the regulatory lawyers, Anne. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So let's wrap up then on, um, on the CSA, so the Common Supervisory Action that's currently underway in relation to compliance with SFDR, disclosures and implementation. 
So just to just to spend a moment to talk about common supervisory actions generally, in case anybody's not that familiar with them. So ESMA, the European Securities and Markets Authority in Paris, has a number of jobs. One of them is to complete the single rule book, and another is to develop and, and encourage supervisory convergence. So as part of that supervisory convergence mandate, they undertake this work called CSAs, common supervisory actions, where individual regulators well, we'll go to ESMA, they'll agree a form of a questionnaire and a topic that they're going to review. Those questionnaires then will be given to the national authorities to go and circulate to their to their regulated firms to complete. And then they make their way back from um, the firms to the regulator in Ireland, that's the central bank. Often there'll be follow-up with on-site meetings by the central bank with a selection of those firms that have completed questionnaires. And ultimately, all of that information will be fed back to ESMA, and ESMA will develop a final report that will set out what they've found. And in addition to that, domestically, often the central bank will produce its own dear CEO letter to give additional feedback. And it wouldn't be unusual if you were a firm that the central bank had visited that you might receive a risk mitigation program, an RMP, identifying what the central bank believes are some weaknesses and how you go about your compliance, for example, and then with a list of to-dos to, to try and close those gaps. So broadly, that's how the CSA process works. And for SFDR, uh, SFDR compliance, we've had this since July of last year. That's when uh, ESMA uh, launched this. It's probably going to run through till about the end of this year or even beyond. So wh- where are we at, Anne? Where are we at? So, yeah, no, that's a really, really cons- comprehensive and concise summary of, of the CSA. So that's exactly what firms can expect from this um, common supervisory action on CSA. That's the process. And I think... You know, firms need to remember that. So my understanding is that not every financial market participant received the original questionnaire on, on SFDR. So some did. I'd say a lot did. And there is a little a little bit of back. There has been back and forth. So there was original responses gone in from the original questionnaire, went back to the central bank. The central bank came back with some more questions. Those questions, I think the deadline for responding to those has passed. Um, and now I think we seem to be in a bit of a holding pattern. Perhaps this SFDR consultations have something to do with this. I, I I don't know. But I think the next stage in the process that you've outlined for, for SFDR is if any firms will be on the list for an on-site visit. I think that was originally slated to happen perhaps by the end of Q1 this year. So if that's the case, I guess if those on-site visits are going to happen by the end of Q1 this year, I guess firms should be hearing about that. I don't know, Danny, in your experience, they, they should be hearing about that soon because I don't think yeah. the central bank just doesn't doesn't turn up. They, they, don't, they, 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 they let you know. <laughs> they get a few weeks' notice to, yeah. to prepare one well, and to agree a date when people are available and, and that yeah. kind of thing, so the logistics. And obviously, if you're in the receiving end, you even it's a CSA, as opposed to a pure supervisory visit, you want to prepare so that you you know, you know know your materials and you're in a good position to have a, a fruitful and meaningful engagement with the central bank. And uh, if it does result in a, in a risk mitigation program, which they often do, that it's one that, you know, you can cope with and it's not one that, that's going to cause the firm a lot of heartache. Yeah. And so I guess the point to remember with this particular common supervisory action, there were obviously questions around the SFDR disclosures themselves, so at a product level, but also at the firm level. 
at the NC level, talking about integration of sustainability risks and factors. So, which was a separate piece of legislation, Danny, you'll remember that the updates to use it's an AFMD integrating sustainability risk. Certainly those policies, I think, are in scope. Those policies are in scope for, for this common supervisory action as well. So it kind of hits it at both product level and both firm level. So, you know, your processes, your policies underlying how you're integrating this into your business are all, all relevant here as well. And then in terms of timing, so just to give people a sense, when the, the last CSA was on asset valuation, so that launched in January 22, ESMA produced their final report in May 23, and the central bank issued a dear CEO letter just in December. So that took okay. about two years from yeah. to finish for, for a dear CEO letter. And I guess for this one, broadly, it'll be something similar something with the complication similar. of the, uh, as you mentioned, the, the uh, SFDO review in between. Yeah, I think that that's that's actually a really useful comparison. Yeah, in terms of overall timing. Yeah. So we're a little bit away yet, given that this launched in July 23. But at the same time, if you are going to be visited, as I said, it's, it's a good idea just to make sure you're well prepared. And everybody else to keep an eye on what's going on here, because you do get good feedback from the report from ESMA and, and the DRCO letter from Central Bank as to where they're at and what they will expect to see if they will come and visit your firm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there we go. And another whistle stop tour of SFD. Yeah. And, I mean, we, 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 could t- we could talk about so many other things for, for sustainable finance regulation, but I think I think we covered a lot. Covered it's a lot, a lot of there. ground covered. And I guess yeah. whilst maybe it's not just as high profile a topic as it was maybe when we spoke two years ago, when you have things in the interim, like, you know, lots of chat about the individual accountability framework and that kind yeah. of stuff. SFG yeah. st- and, and sustainability in ESG is still such an active part of the regulatory environment at the moment for for the investment funds industry. Yeah, definitely. If if it's not if it's not somewhere on your your regulatory change horizon, it should be. It should be. Listen, yeah. Thanks very much, Dan. Appreciate your time and your expertise. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for the conversation. Um, thank you, Request listeners. We'll catch you the next time on the Request Podcast. The Request Podcast: Funds Industry Conversations.